Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter um, five. You're gonna read um, the last verse in chapter five, the beginning of chapter um, six. We talk a lot in our church about gospel culture. A gospel culture is what you want in in your church. A gospel culture is what you want. um, we, We want in our school, we want in our student ministry what we want in our camp, in our preschool, and whatever we do. A gospel culture is what you should want in your home. Um, gospel culture is sort of the corporate incarnation of the saving grace of God that we experience individually. Uh, so when it shows up uh, corporately, uh, it just cre- it changes the vibe of a place. It changes the tone um, in a home or in a church it changes the, the preaching, um, the, there's, there's joy, there's welcome, there's humility, there's love and, uh, and laughter in a community sweetened by um, the gospel. It's sort of like, what's a gospel culture? It's, what would it be like if Jesus was the head of the church? What would it be like if Jesus was the pastor of the church? What would that church be like? What would it be like if Jesus was... Um, the head of the school? What would it be like if Jesus was the head of the, the coach of the football team? What would it be like if Jesus um, was the head of your house? Well, he is. And uh, so one place we're going to find that that shows up particularly is in our relationships. A lot of people say, you know, to be a Christian means that you have to hold to the right doctrine. And, and that's true. Uh, I've actually had people come to join the church and they say, you know, I, I, I want to be a member of this church. I just wish I believed in God, you know. So <clears throat> there are certain doctrines that you have to hold to to be a Christian. But the idea that some people have is if you have the right doctrines, then you got it. No, um, uh, you know, if you belong to Jesus, there will also be an emerging relational beauty. That's where we're going. So why don't you stand as I read God's word for us. A true church is more than doctrinal orthodoxy. It has a culture of relational beauty. So Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, the last verse of chapter five, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This then is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. It stands forever. You may be seated. 
When the gospel gets a hold of you, it makes a difference in your relationships. When the gospel gets a hold of you, it changes your relationships. It creates relational beauty. It creates people who are wild for each other. I mean, relationships, what else matters, right? Um, in this world, you know, your job, your health, um, uh, your recreation, your travel, all those are all um, great, wonderful things. But, you know, if you're, if you're married and, uh, and your relationship with your spouse is sour, nothing else is going to cover that. Um, it's the most important um, if you're married. What about the relationship with your children? What about your grandchildren? What about your sons-in-law or daughter-in-law? Relationships, right? Friends, relationships. That's what matters the most. The gospel creates Relational beauty creates people who are for each other, people who love. I love what it says in verse 14 of chapter five. We didn't um, read it, it's earlier in the passage. Because remember, these, um, these uh, people have gone from Jerusalem, Paul's teaching in Galatia. The Galatians are not Jews, they are uh, Gentiles. They come from a Greek culture. And, um, and yet, uh, after Paul teaches that salvation is by grace, it's by grace alone, by the work of Christ alone, these other people have come in and said, no, 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 it's not just Christ, but you've got to keep the law. You've got to keep the, all the laws of Judaism. So I love what Paul says in this passage. You want to keep the law? Good. You know how the whole law is fulfilled? It's fulfilled in this one thing, love your neighbor. You want to keep the law? Good. Love your neighbor. Um, I, it's like, I dare you, keep the law. Um, you see, this is the way God intended the world to function because he's the God of relational joy and affection um, and, and community. Um, you know, when you, when you speak in a preschool chapel, if you ever to ask the little preschoolers, um, why did God make the world? Why did God make you? Somebody will always raise their hand and say what? Because he was lonely, Right? Well, the answer to that is no, God was never lonely because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in triune community from all um, history past, right? In triune bliss, co-equal, co-eternal, forever relating in affection and support. And we are made in God's image. We were made for community with God and with each other. But what happens? What's the beginning of the story in the Bible? We divorce God. There's a breach in community with God. And so there's a breach in community with each other. In fact, the husband and wife relationship, as soon as God shows up, Adam says, the reason we screwed up is what? The woman. Now, Adam wasn't always wrong. Um, <laughs> the woman you gave me, right? Um, uh, immediately there's a breach, right? Adam doesn't defend his wife. He didn't defend his wife when the evil one came into the garden. He doesn't defend his wife um, there. He doesn't take the blame himself. You see a relational breach immediately. And that's nothing compared to what we see come next in the Bible, right? Fratricide. Brother kills brother. Can you imagine that? Cain kills Abel. It's right at the beginning, right in the beginning of humanity. Are we in? Is it a surprise to turn on CNN and to see Jews being hacked to death um, um, in, in the Holy Land or to see Ukrainian children snatched up and brought off um, to Russia because this animosity towards um, each other is the fruit of our separation from God. And when God goes to Cain, who kills his brother Abel, um, and says, where is your brother? What does Cain say? Am I 
Am I my brother's keeper to which God would have screamed through all the ages? Yes. And you know who is your keeper? Your older brother, his name is Jesus. And that changes everything. I spoke in this conference in St. Augustine some years ago. And I'll never forget, there was a co-speaker, so we both had speaking responsibilities. And I remember when I finished speaking for the first time, he came up after me and he said, and that was the most powerful thing I've ever heard. He said, I wept the whole time you were speaking. He's just thanking me profusely. And then I spoke again, and when I was uh, done with that, he, he came up to me and he said, I've heard that subject talked about many times before, but I've never heard it um, said so effectively, um, so powerfully. I mean, it, you spoke right into my soul. And then, and then, uh, then when I got finished speaking the third time and I prayed, afterwards he said, I don't think I've ever heard anybody pray like that. It was an intimacy that, that seemed, there was a realness to your, and I mean, I remember driving away from this conference thinking, he was a speaker, you know? He had a lot on his mind, he had a lot to do. He had everything to do that I was doing, and yet I think the whole reason it seems like he was there was to what? Courage me, build me up, right? Call out the best in, uh, in me. I, I, I just drove away saying, that was remarkable relational beauty, when we run into it, it's remarkable. So how do we get there, right? Ready to go? Sermon outline? Here's the first point. We get there by dealing with conceit. Relational beauty of the gospel is devoid of conceit. How many of you know what conceit is? <laughs> You're so conceited. Um, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna suggest you don't know what conceit is. Most people, when they, when they say so-and-so is so conceited, what do they mean? They mean that they're full of what? It's actually the opposite. Um, it means they're empty, right? Um, the gospel produces, so what, is, what does it say in verse 26, right at the beginning? Let us not become conceited, Paul's writing to the Galatians, provoking one another and envying one another. Um, so we gotta be free uh, from conceit to be other-oriented and not um, self-obsessed. Our natural condition um, being separated from God leaves us feeling deeply insecure. What happens to a child if they're orphaned, right? They're insecure. They don't have a mom. They don't have a dad. They don't have a home. They don't know where their next meal's coming from. They don't know where they're laying their head uh, at night. They don't know what their future holds. Everything about their life is secure, separ insecure, separated from God. We are filled with insecurity so you know what conceit means? Conceit means empty, empty of honor, empty of the sense of worth and weight and meaning. That's what it means to be conceited. And what do we do with that emptiness, right? We've got to fill it because everybody has a hunger to want to what? I want to matter. I want to be somebody, right? I want to have importance. I want to have weight. I don't want to be a nobody, right? I want to have that sense inside that, 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 that there's value to my life. So how do we find that? We find that, do we attempt to fill our empty center by comparison, by, by, by envying one another, right? Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, we compare ourselves against others in the hope that that comparison will fill that emptiness. Does that make sense? 
Maybe I am somebody if I'm what? If I'm better than other people. Maybe if I weigh myself against other people and I look good. So this happens all the time. You may not even know this. You may not even be conscious of it, but it is a, it is a way of life, a way of doing life of all of us. Paul's addressing it 2,000 years ago. So if you measure yourself against others and you judge others to be less smart, less funny, less attractive, less gifted, then you might feel what? You might feel good about yourself, right? You might feel superior. You might feel that you have value. I'm better than these other schleps, you know? But the problem, what's the, what's the other side of that? I should say, you know, just, just, think, just think for a minute about considering yourself and how we like to find people who are obviously flawed that will help us bolster our sense of value. Like people who are obese, people who use food stamps in the grocery store, people who smoke, people who are in the opposite political party. Oh gosh, I despise them. People who have bad grammar. Or perhaps, worst of all, people who like the Dallas Cowboys, right? <laughs> Somebody came out last night, why do you always pick on the Cowboys? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> we feel derision. When we feel it, we feel superior. Um, I'm more gifted, talented. No, we don't, we don't kind of think that. We don't sit around and think, you know, I take better care of myself. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do this. You know, those people put all their money in cryptocurrency. They're stupid. I'm not stupid, right? We don't just sit around and sort of, but it's happening. It's happening inside of us. We're constantly getting our worth from this comparison. It's called conceit. Measuring our worth against other people is... Um, is ugly, but, but of course the opposite side is you judge, what if you judge other people to be smarter, better looking, more gifted, you know, in better shape, more attractive, better read than you are. Then we feel insecure and we feel inferior and we feel worthless. I feel fat, I feel dumb, I feel intimidated. You know, they have, they have good challenging jobs. They live in this gated community. They, you know, I've, I've barely got two dimes to, to rub together. So we measure ourselves against other people. Listen, I know what it's like. What do you think it's like for me when I go to another church and hear some other preacher preach? Sometimes I sit there and say, this is the dullest, driest thing I've ever heard in my life. If I were a Christian, I would deconvert um, by the end of this sermon. Besides, why doesn't he read the word? Why doesn't he teach the word? People died that we could have the word. There's this thing called the Bible. Why doesn't he use it? That could be one attitude or even worse, they could be really good. And I could think, God, oh, listen to their vocabulary. What they're saying is so good. I've, I've preached in that passage and it stunk. Well, they're, they're lighting up the room. They're awesome. They're smart. They're gifted. They have a Scottish accent, you know? <laughs> Um, it's so ugly. And you realize it's ugly because it's just self-absorption, right? You're not thinking about how you can bless the other person. You're just thinking about yourself. Now, again, I'm not talking about a few of us. This is all of us. This is the way we do it. This is a fruit of our being alienated from God and not having the security of the gospel, right? 
Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, um, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. So the person who thinks, oh, I'm awful, I'm rotten, that's not humility, you're still what? You're thinking of yourself. You're obsessed with yourself. Um, So running around saying, I'm terrible, I'm a terrible person, I'm this, that, you're self-obsessed. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. So we can't love others when we're absorbed with ourselves. So how do we overcome our conceit? How do we fill the hole at the center of us? And that's where the gospel comes in. That's why the gospel can fundamentally change the way we relate to other people. Because in the gospel, we have everything we need to be humble, right? Um, Why should we be humble? Because we have no righteousness of our own. We have no righteousness of our own. If we're a Christian, if we're related rightly to God, if our relationship with God has been restored, it's restored entirely by the work of Jesus. We contribute what? Nothing. We have no righteousness of our own. What does it say? If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Guess what? You are nothing. You are nothing if you have not the righteousness of Christ, right? We, we produce no righteousness. Now, again, I'll just give you an example. Um, what's, what's, what's somebody that we could pretty much say everybody despises? What's a, what's a, what's a category of, of someone that everybody in culture despises? Even people in prison despise. Pedophile, right? Somebody who would uh, abuse, take sexual advantage of, of little children, um, universally despised. Do you realize that you would be a pedophile? Not because you're so moral and so good and make such good choices, but simply because God protected you from the kind of thing that makes people pedophiles, right? The kind of abuses of children, the kind of horrific home environment, the kind of mental, whatever it is, right? I'll call it all the spectrum that produces a pedophile. The only reason you're not a pedophile is the grace of God. Do you realize that? You have no ground to consider yourself better than any person because you have no righteousness. You have no merit on your own, right? So the gospel ought to make us uniquely humble and yet uniquely confident. Why would we be confident? Because though we have no righteousness of our own, if we have Jesus Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ. And we are God's beloved. He loves us at our worst, cares about us. He's taken with us. So our self-image, you know, your self-image isn't tied to how you view yourself. And it's not tied to how other people view you. It's tied to how God views you. What if he's crazy about you? So it wasn't that many years ago, one of my daughters got married right in the front of this room and their reception was right outside. And, and I remember a couple days later, I ran across somebody in the church who was at that affair and, and they said to me, your daughter was transcendent. She was majestic. She was, I could not believe, she was beautiful. And they just, blah, 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 blah. they went on. And I remember when it happened, I remember hearing them and, and thinking, was she really? I didn't notice. Because she didn't look one different that day to me than she did the day she was born and every day after, Right? Clothes, makeup, whatever, 
I didn't make her beautiful. To me, I've been nuts about her since the day she was born, right? If you belong to Jesus, he's nuts about you. You don't have to be about you because somebody else is about you. Jesus. And that allows you to be about other people. You get it? There it is. That's where relational beauty comes. Don't be self-absorbed. You don't need to be. You're filled. You're full. The spirit whispering, the Bible says, in our hearts that we are the children of God. At our worst moments, the spirit whispering, hey, you know what? You screwed up, right? Um, But I cover your screw-ups. The spirit whispering in our heart, I'm still proud of you. You belong to me. You're one of mine. You're my beloved. We're gonna do eternity together. Got it? Second, how do we deal with this? Uh, how, where does relational beauty come from? Paul tells uh, the, the folks in the church in Galatia that their relationships are to be gently restorative. The gospel enables us to live with a, a, a relational beauty which is restorative and redemptive and healing. That's what it says in verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. We look out for each other. We leave no man behind. What does Ecclesiastes 4 say? Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil, right? And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to the one who's traveling alone. When he falls, there's nobody to lift him up, right? We don't travel alone. We're in the family of God So here it is, the Bible says, Paul says, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, okay? Um, So does that mean that we are to confront anyone we see sinning in any way? That doesn't sound like gospel community, that sounds like hell to me, right? Um, Now, you know, 1 Peter 4 says, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient and kind. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity to always eagerly tell others where they are wrong. You hear it? That's a, spark of, that's a mark of spiritual immaturity to always see what's wrong in others and take a little bit of delight in pointing it out. Do you know, for about 10 years, a gentleman came to our church and every Sunday he was the first one out. I don't know how he pulled it off, but he was. He was because he had a mission And every Sunday he'd come out and tell me something I said that was wrong. And uh, it never had to do with what I was preaching on. Um, So you said that Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo in 1820, you know, 1815, but it was 1827. That's what I get every week. And you know what? I honestly think in 10 years he was never right once. But he took such relish. I think that's why he came to church every week. Uh, stump the pastor, you know. Find something wrong. Um, there's something about us. Again, go back to point one. We want to see the wrong in others. It helps us feel better about ourselves. So who is to be restored, though? The one who is caught, it says. If anyone is caught. In other words, they're trapped by a pattern of sin that's gotten the upper hand. And they need the love and encouragement and perhaps accountability to be free of it. 
Bitterness has a hold of them. Maybe their tongue, maybe it's gossip, right? Maybe they're just too self-indulgent. Maybe they're sexually inappropriate or flirtatious. Maybe there's a critical spirit that they always have. Maybe it's a critical spirit towards the church or towards their spouse. Um, The Bible says we're to care enough to fight for their spiritual well-being. You got that? It takes guts to do this and it takes wisdom to do this. And it takes maturity to do this. I love what John Stott, the great theologian said, notice how positive Paul's instruction is. If we detect somebody doing something wrong, we're not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it's none of our business and we have no wish to be involved, nor are we to despise or condemn them in our hearts, nor are we to report them or gossip about them to our friends. No, we are to what? Restore. And how are we to restore? What does the passage say? We're to do it Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gently. Do you know what the word restore means here? Literally means in the, in the Greek. It's to set a broken bone. When you go to an orthopedic doctor because you have a broken arm, how much does gentleness matter? <laughs> right? You don't want a doctor whose face just lights up and says, I love to set a broken bone right? It just snaps your arm back, right? That's not what we want. Go easy. This thing's already killing me, right? Um, We are called to inflict healing pain gently. It also says to do it humbly. Keep watch on yourself, right? So we, we do it gently and humbly, not with a blindness to our own sin and weakness. When you see a speck in your brother's eye, the Bible says what? Be sure you what? Take the log out of your own eye, right? You can't correct gently unless you know you're worse than the person you're correcting. If you're pointing out error in someone else that you don't see in yourself, then don't point out their error. Deal with yours. If you can't identify how you're guilty of what you see in them, then you're not qualified. And you won't be able to rescue them gently. When you come alongside friends to rescue them, come alongside as a greater screw up. You got it? We're to be restorative. Gospel community is restorative and and redemptive. So there's a young man in our church, he got invited to a men's um, book group to read a book. They read a book by Tim Keller on forgiveness. And you read that, you gain some knowledge and it's all good. But in this young man's, Life. He had, a, he had a relationship that was broken. It happened to be with his mother. They hadn't spoken in 10 years. I don't know anything about that story. I don't know anything about the cause of that uh, breach. All I know is that there had been no words for 10 years, but because God um, taught him something in that book about how he was forgiven by God, how God made the initiative to forgive us, to come to us, he went to his mother. He brought his son to his mother who hadn't seen her in 10 years. Uh, he hadn't seen her in 10 years. She'd never met her grandson. And, uh, and uh, he sensed that some of us saw a picture of this beautiful redemption. That's gospel community. We take the lead to go. What if somebody else 90% wrong and you're 10% at wrong? Go, go. You are 10% wrong. Go take the lead. You confess, you break, you, you, you breach 
um, the, the gap between um, the two of you. Listen, the gospel produces relational beauty where broken relationships and people are restored. You know, it, it won't always work out great, you know, um, at first. I went to a, we had a funeral here, it's probably been five or 10 years now. And, and I remember somebody came up to me at the funeral and they had gone to our church a long time ago. And they sought me out at the funeral and, and they came up to me and they said, I don't know if you remember me and I'm not sure I did. Um, they said, but I used to go to church here and you challenged me about something in my life and, uh, and you tried to correct me and hold me accountable and I didn't like it so I left. And I never came back. And, uh, and they said, I want you to know that God used your words years later to prompt me and I repented of that and that God changed me and I just wanna tell you thank you. So when we do the right thing when it comes to entering into somebody's life and maybe saying hard things, um, that doesn't mean that in the next um, five minutes you're gonna see them melt in a puddle of repentance and their life be changed and all. It, you know, when you fix broken bones, they take a long time sometimes, right? Um, but we, we have to let the spirit do its work. We don't leave anyone mind. I love this little video from the 2023 London Marathon. Watch this guy collapse right there. See him in the middle of the man in the black stops and helps him near the finish line. Then another guy comes along and helps him. And there they go. Uh, they're impairing their own time. Look at all the people passing them by because they're not gonna let another guy not finish the race, right? There's gospel community right there in the picture. We stop, we slow down, we grab somebody else and we travel together to the new heavens and the new earth. You got it? You with me? We gotta deal with our internal conceit that makes us self-absorbed. Uh, if anyone's um, um, caught in, a, in sin, we help them out of that. And last of all, um, gospel relationships are sacrificially supportive. We bear one another's burdens, Paul said. Bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. Nobody carries their burden alone. That's the beauty of baptism. I mentioned it already. The heaviest burden we have is to get our children to heaven. We need the church. We need each other. Yeah, we, my wife and I, we had one of our kids run away one time. And 10 minutes away from the house, a policeman drove by, saw him walking down the road, picked him up and brought him home. They were back in their bedroom before we knew they were gone. <laughs> that policeman was a member of this church. I can't tell you how many ways. You see, that's what it's about. Why do we do Seven Rivers Christian School and Camp Seven Rivers and Seven Rivers Kids and Seven Rivers Student Ministry and all this interaction with children and all? Um, because the whole church is saying the burden of the spiritual formation of your children and your grandchildren rests with all of us. You got it? We bear each other's burdens. It's the greatest burden of all. Get our kids, get our grandkids to Jesus. Get them to heaven um, you guys do, thank you, Seven Rivers. Thank you for your influence on my children. Um, you know, um, Paul says we're to be burden lifters. These Judaizers went to Galatia and they told the people, no, Jesus didn't do it all for you. You gotta do a lot of the lifting yourself. You gotta keep the law. And Paul says, you know what God's people are? 
We don't lay burdens on people. We lift them off people. Jesus said, my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you bear a burden? Somebody's carrying something heavy, what do you do? Do you stand there and say, good job. You can do it. Proud of you. Um, That might help if you have a really bad back. Um, But no, you gotta come alongside them, right? And you gotta let that burden slide onto you, right? So you're doing the heavy lifting with them or you're doing the heavy lifting instead of them. But you have to get close, right? How many people say, you know what meant the most when, um, when we were grieving? It's not the words that somebody said, because that's what keeps us away from people very often. When something horrible happens in somebody's life, we don't do anything because we don't know what to say. But guess what? There is nothing to say when there's some great tragedy. Somebody loses a baby in the womb. There's nothing to say. You just be. You just go be with them. You lift the burden by being there. Do you know that my son had spinal surgery when he was like in first or second grade? It took about six hours in Shands. And I can still tell you the people who are in the waiting room with us. And that was what? 30, more than that, 35 years ago. I can still tell you the people that showed up to sit in the waiting room with us. Because it matters when people come alongside of you and they, uh, and they lift the burden. So we had a daughter who had something called cyclic vomiting syndrome. And uh, they didn't even, we didn't know what that was. Nobody knew what that was. All we knew is that in the middle of the night, she would wake up and start vomiting and she would not stop and there was no way to make her stop and there was nothing you could do. We had to take her to the emergency room, which meant we had to get our pediatrician involved uh, in the middle of the night, which meant we had to wait till we could somehow manage to wake them up, get them um, to the emergency room because the people in the emergency room didn't know how to treat it. Only the pediatrician uh, had developed a protocol and he had to tell the people in the emergency room what this went on all night long and it went on. One year, it happened every single month. Um, and this was taxing on our family. This is draining on our family, not us as parents, but uh, her siblings. Uh, it was a, a challenge. And of course it was grieving because we went to Shands, we went to children's hospitals, we went to places they couldn't uh, deal with this. And a woman in our church who was a nurse and she also happened to be connected to a pharmacy. So that meant she had the good stuff. And uh, so she said, next time she starts vomiting in the middle of the night, you call me. Her bed at her house, a box of everything she would need. She would grab that box. She would be in our house in 20, 25 minutes. And she would administer the um, very dangerous medicine that was needed and sit with our daughter the entire night long, monitoring her time after time after time after time. She lifted our burden. I know I can tell you that, I mean, the strain on our marriage, on our parenting, on our health, on our home, we'll never forget what she did for us. It's powerful. I know a lady and her husband that never sit together in church because they're so committed to single people People who don't have a spouse, people who come to church alone, 
that they each find somebody by themselves and sit with them so they never, they give up sitting together in church. I never even heard of that before because they're so committed to bearing the burden of those who are alone. I know a pastor friend who a couple weeks ago when that horror in Israel took place, he called up the rabbis in his community and he said, I'm here for you. Our people will park in front of your building if you need protection. But if you're just heartbroken, we'll pray. Burden bearing. Burden bearing. Do you know there's a deacon in our church who bought a woman, uh, a, a widow in our home. He bought her house because she couldn't afford the uh, payments anymore. He bought it. She lives in there. She pays nothing for it. He does all the upkeep, everything else. Now she has the money to, uh, to live on. Burden bearing. Beautiful. Redemptive beauty, right? Um, why do we bear burdens? Why? Because somebody bore ours. He bore it right to the cross, right? The burden of our sins, our older brother bore in his own body on the tree. Our burden was borne by Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. So are you your brother's keeper? Because our brother Jesus was certainly ours. Amen. Jesus, bring redemptive beauty to our lives so that our homes are marked by relational beauty in our marriages, in our parenting. Lord, bring relational beauty to our church and our school and our camp and our athletic teams and our student ministry. Make this a place of relational beauty that we might truly reflect you. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.